From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, it is our annual baseball broadcast. Joining me to discuss the American pastime is award-winning author and journalist Jane Levy. And after that, we welcome back my good friend Johnny Costa to talk baseball. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. Baseball is like no other sport. Opening day for all 30 teams has almost a religious connotation that for at least until the first pitch is thrown, fans are filled with hope and optimism that may belie the reality of their team's fortunes. Moreover, there is a sociological impact of baseball that has sometimes run parallel with the larger culture and at other times ran ahead of it, most notably Jackie Robinson. And then there are the numbers. Though the tradition of baseball took a hit during the steroids era, there are some numbers that are enshrined in its ethos. For example, hitting 400 is synonymous with Ted Williams, who was the last man to do it. 56, Joe DiMaggio's unbelievable consecutive game hitting streak. And 714, the number of home runs hit by Babe Ruth. Ruth, who was physically a large man, cast an even larger shadow over the game that is beautifully chronicled in Arthur Jane Levy's latest book, The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. With books on Sandy Koufax and Mickey Mantle, along with a comic novel squeeze play, the Entertainment Weekly called The Best Novel Ever Written About Baseball Already in Tow, we are honored to have this sage of our national pastime on the public morality. Jane Levy, welcome to the Public Morality. Gosh, you said my name correctly. I'm so <laughs> grateful. Well, you know how you know you know how they get to Carnegie Hall, right? Practice. So it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> some people with a lot of practice don't get to Carnegie Hall. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, I, I want to begin with the title of your book, given that I don't know of any professional athlete that had more nicknames than Babe Ruth, including Babe Ruth. Babe, um, how did you decide on the big fella? Uh, I decided on the big fella, and nobody's asked me this. That's lovely. Um, because it's what ballplayers actually call them. All those other purple pros, uh, pithy purple pros names and monikers were things that were created by uh, gobsmacked sports writers to try to outdo each other and to try to give a sense of how much he, uh, he Ruth, um, the big fella, outdid expectations um, that had been, you know, that prevailed in the game for so many years until he came along and reinvented it. Now, th this is my, my personal bias. Uh, I hold Babe Ruth and Jackie Robinson as the two most important players in baseball history. Where do you hold Ruth specifically in terms of his importance to the game? 
there's no doubt, and I defer to my pal, the guy who created uh, Fantasy Baseball and who was also the um, ombudsman for the New York Times, Dan Okren, on this, because you can't say it better than he did. The reason Babe Ruth is the greatest ball player ever to play the game is that he was both Mozart and Cezanne. Or I think Dan said, may have said Beethoven. No, he said he said Mozart and Cezanne. He said it on um, Ken Burns. He said right. it. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and it's true. I mean, people, because he existed in a world before radio and before uh, tabloid newspapers and before, God knows, before new, talking newsreels and television, um, those years that he pitched for the Boston Red Sox, um, where you can't really see, except in a couple of jumpy old film clips, you know, what he looked like um, on the mound, are largely forgotten and um, undervalued. So he was the best left-handed pitcher in the, in the American League and for a time in, in both leagues. Um, and then he basically said, screw it, I'd rather hit. That's a direct quote from Mike Rizzo, the general manager of the Washington Nationals. And, uh, you know, and he took the game literally into his own very large hands and out of the control of micromanaging uh, baseball managers like the John McGraws of the world, who were accustomed to dictating how the game was played by moving men around the bases as if they were chess pieces. So now, you know, you'll bunt and you'll hit away and you'll do this and, you know, you'll hit the left field. And it was station-to-station baseball. And Babe Ruth comes along and says, why should I do that when, you know, when I can with one swing of what he was then swinging of 50, you know, ounce bat, end this thing, you know, put the ball out of the ballpark. Until he came along, home runs were really not only rare, but they tended to be in, inside the park kind of variety of home runs where they got, you know, hit some wall on a funny angle and slipped the outfielders and um, and somebody would run all the way around the bases. But Ruth, uh, there's, a, there's a great uh, statistics in the book, and the statistics were done by a fabulous economist, Michael Halbert, from the University of Wisconsin at La Crosse. You were more likely to know one of the American survivors of the Titanic than to have seen one of the home runs hit in baseball in 1918. <laughs> so Babe Ruth revolutionized the game. He remade it in his own image. And uh, it's, a, it's, you know, one of those great guessing games of baseball. Would he have gone to the Hall of Fame as a left-handed pitcher? Who knows? Um, and don't ask me about Otani because, A, he's injured and already, and let's see him do it 20 years, and then we'll discuss whether he's as good as the babe. Well, well he's a... Uh... Uh, how many home runs? How many home runs? Otani have last year? Ten. He, so he's, he's at least seven hundred home runs behind. So he's got he's got a ways yeah, to give go. Give or take. Yeah, give or take. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what challenges did you have tackling Ruth as a subject that differ from, say, your books about Sandy Koufax and Mickey Mantle? Oi, that's the answer to that question. Um, <laughs> I'm trained as a journalist. I went to Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and what I learned to do and liked to do was to go out and 
find people to tell stories that hadn't been told or to tell them in a different way, and uh, sometimes uh, to get people to say things that were not necessarily in their own best interest, but would interest readers. And for this book, um, most of the people I needed to speak to are currently dead, as Casey Stengel might have put it. And so I had to learn to be an archivist and a researcher and, and a historian. And uh, that felt very intimidating because, you know, how do I know how to do that stuff? And uh, what I learned in the process is that the availability, um, increasingly, the availability of digitized collections of old, defunct newspapers and of family records in state archives, Massachusetts, New York, um, Maryland especially, um, contain information that guys who preceded me, who certainly tried to get at the story that I ultimately was able to find, but couldn't because there was no mechanism for it. All I had to do was click a mouse to find the divorce of George Herman Ruth Sr. and Katie Ruth, Babe Ruth's parents. And that you know, gave me an insight into why he never talked about his childhood, the man he became um, as a consequence of a childhood that was spent largely in a reform school uh, when his parents' marriage dissolved, um, and uh, what he went through as a young boy before he was sent off to St. Mary's at age seven, St. Mary's Industrial School on the western cusp of Baltimore, um, having seen the birth and death of at least four siblings. So it turned out unexpectedly that what I thought was disadvantage wasn't. Um, And I found the voices of his family in archives that um, were otherwise unavailable to you know, the great writers who have preceded me, Bob Creamer and uh, Marshall Smelser and Cal Wagenheim and Tom Meany and uh, most recently, more recently, Lee Monville. Uh, I'm going to ask you about some of those writers because I was curious. You worked on this project for eight years, is that correct? Did you have to mention that? <laughs> yes, uh, eight and, years. And you proudly boast that you have slept with Babe Ruth longer than anyone else, right? <laughs> I said yes. I, I like to say. I, well, I didn't say slept with. I said I've spent. I now hold major league record for having spent more nights. Right, more nights. Alone That's it. Yes, yes, with yes. Babe Ruth. Well, okay. In history, including his two wives, put together. <laughs> All right. Then, then we got the quote straight. So, my question to you then is: Talk about so that that's the that's the official time you spent with Ruth. How long um, did you unofficially spend time? And what I mean unofficially, uh, I mean, there were people that you have run across who, uh, over your years as a writer with the Washington Post, that you've heard, I'm sure you've heard stories. I know you, you, you interviewed his daughter. By any chance, did you, did you know, get a chance to know and talk uh, any time with Shirley Povich? Oh, sure. Shirley was still writing for the Post when I started there and. Covered Ruth. <laughs> and yes, and he covered Ruth and he played golf with Ruth and he liked Ruth a lot. And the piece he wrote 
for the Post on uh, the 100th anniversary of Babe's uh, death, or I should say, no, the 100th anniversary of his birth in uh, 1995 was extremely helpful because Shirley had, um, you know, the, a great writer's ability to uh, put in words the motion of Babe's bat and of his body as he moved in space to, you know, generate the power that he was able to unleash. And so Shirley was invaluable. Uh, talk about, because you, you mentioned earlier about Ruth being a great hitter uh, as well as a great pitcher before, before being a uh, great hitter. Talk, if you will, about Ruth's hands. <laughs> there are a couple of pictures in the in the book um, that show him. One in particular on the barnstorming tour in the fall of 1927, which I used as a way of um, organizing the book to show, because I wanted people to feel what it was like to be Babe Ruth at the apogee of fame, and what it was like to be around Babe Ruth. You know, in that moment in American history when he was really creating a new way to be famous. Um, so there's a picture of him with this little boy who was his bat boy at, in San Francisco, um, Jack Whitey Stewart. And Babe Ruth's arm literally comes all the way around the kid. And, you know, and, and this maw of a hand is like reaching around him. It looks like kind of like a garden trowel. It's so big. <laughs> and the other way to measure it that, that was just, Fabulous. Um, it was Cal Ripken was at the uh, Hall of Fame, and I covered Cal Ripken when he was with the Orioles uh, for the unveiling. Uh, I think it was in 2013 of uh, the new Babe Ruth exhibit, which was the newest, the first one in 30 years that they had, you know, put together. And they have Babe Ruth's bowling ball uh, behind glass, and Cal grabs my my arm and he says, "Come here, I got to show you something." And he shows me this bowling ball, which was well-used, blue and black kind of paisley. And he says, I'd really like to stick my fingers in Babe's ball. <laughs> and Cal being Cal didn't quite get how that sounded. And I said, well, you know, I, I think we could actually arrange that. I knew that the curator, uh, senior curator of the hall, Tom Schieber, had another one of Babe's bowling balls downstairs in the uh, you know the collection of of the Hall of Fame is a homelier uh, version, so they put the nice one on display. And what Cal was saying was he was a great athlete, wanting to feel the spread of Babe Ruth's hands. He wanted to understand how he could control equally a ball thrown from sixty feet six inches and hit one the way he did at the other end of those sixty feet six inches. So what I did is I got a bowling ball expert to go to the Hall of Fame and measure the size of the spread of his hand, which was ample, you know, I mean, and way bigger. I mean, he was just bigger than everybody when he played. But the thing that was just mind-boggling was the size of, the, the, the size of his fingers. So the, imagine you're sticking your finger in the hole of his, his thumb hole, and it was more than an inch wide at the knuckle. Wow. I mean, <laughs> that gives you a sense of the dimension of the man. And, uh, you know, he always said that he wrapped his little pinky around um, 
off off the end of the bat um, because he used it to guide the knob of the bat. But I think it was also because his hands were so big that that uh, it was hard to get them all <laughs> on the on the shaft of the bat. Mm. Bat handle. If you're just joining us, uh, I am speaking with um, author. Uh, journalist Jane Levy about her latest book, The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. What was the world that Ruth created? You know, I didn't realize that Byron, it was an after-the-fact thing. I've done three baseball biographies, one of Sandy Koufax, a man who eschewed celebrity culture and was often missed described as a result of his uh, unwillingness to participate in the, in the commodification of a self and of his soul. And then I did Mickey Mantle, who I think was destroyed by celebrity, being a 19-year-old hick kid who came to New York in 1951 and you know, basically ended up drinking himself to death um, because he couldn't handle it all. And then there's Babe Ruth who comes to uh, the Boston Red Sox in uh, June, July 1914, before there's radio, when, you know, the size of a celebrity's, uh, celebrity is as big as the circulation of the of afternoon newspaper. And um, he had the benefit, the luck, to reach the, his, the height of his powers just as a technological revolution um, and mass communications was changing the country and the way we heard things and saw things. A, a moment that was every bit as revolutionary as the personal computing uh, revolution that we've all, you know, partaken in. So, you know, suddenly there's radio and he's being interviewed on radio. Suddenly there are games that he's playing in. 1927, there are two national um, radio networks, NBC and CBS, that, that carry the World Series live coast to coast. And, you know, the first game was broadcast only six years earlier in Pittsburgh. And, uh, you know, in, in six years earlier at the Polo Grounds, Babe Ruth was pictured in September 1921 holding a, a, a carrier pigeon because uh, they were playing, the Yankees were playing a a big series against the Cleveland Indians and the residents of the Upper East Side of Manhattan didn't want to have to wait until the afternoon papers to get an update of what was going on at, at the ballpark. So the pigeon flew back and forth between innings to, to, to update them. So in, imagine that, the difference between 1921 and 27, when you can, they've already developed a prototype of a fax machine. They can send a picture overnight from New York to Chicago or New York to San Francisco. They sent pictures of Lindbergh, uh, you know, across the, the Atlantic Ocean um, overnight so that the D New York Daily News had pictures of him landing in Paris the next morning. They had, you know, radio broadcasts from the, Lindbergh's uh, acceptance of the, the first, uh, was it Silver Cross, I guess it was, um, at the Washington Monument, it was broadcast around the world, and, and untold millions of people, some of them dropped dead from, from excitement, listened to the you know um, the the long count fight broadcast by Graham McNamee, the first great radio baseball you know sports broadcaster. So uh, 
he was he comes to New York just the uh, six months, seven months after the first uh, tabloid newspaper is published. That's the New York Daily News, and just a month after they've created the back page for sports, because sports is suddenly becoming such an important part of the culture. And while it wasn't created specifically for Babe Ruth, it might as well have been. And so there are new ways of knowing things. And one of the things people want to know about is Babe. And they want to know, they want to, they want to wear his cologne, they want to smoke his cigars, they want to use his shaving cream. So you've got a whole world of marketing and PR and the mechanisms for delivering those messages and those images that never existed before. Uh, would it be fair to say that at least the exterior persona of Babe Ruth as a celebrity, being that he was a large man with seemingly large appetites, that he actually there was a perfect nexus where he splashes into the culture that also possessed similar cravings at the time? Would that be accurate? Yeah, absolutely. He was the perfect example of a of the reckless, wanton, do everything, see everything, drink everything. I don't know what, 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 what word should I use? Enjoy the company of everything <laughs> and everyone. Twenties, um, you know. Um, he never seemed to sleep. He was always going somewhere, doing something. Um, the agenda and the itinerary that was created by his agent, Christy Walsh, and I neglected to mention him. We're gonna, now, I'm going to ask you about him anyway. Okay. We're going to get to um, Christy Walsh. Don't worry. It was, it was nonstop. And, you know, he never seemed to run out of gas. And um, that was very, it was endemic to that kind of crazy time that came to a halt and a crash in the fall of 1929. One of the things about uh, famous people, and it's one of the unfortunate aspects about being famous is those of us who are not famous, we think we know them. Um, and we think we know things about them and even things that may may or may not be true, we sort of embrace them as the truth and as our way of shortcutting getting to know someone or perceiving that as such. But your text challenges some of the public sup suppositions held about Ruth, especially in his childhood. And I'd like for you to talk about that. You mentioned this a little bit. If you talk a little more about that, if you would. You know, I, I'm so glad you said that. I remember being sent um, as a reporter in the style section of the, of the Washington Post to interview Jane Fonda in a hotel um, when she came to town with her uh, with her exercise, you know, burn, you know, right. video. And I had 15 minutes with her. And I remember writing, you know, you can't know somebody in 15 minutes. You can only know who they are and what they want you to see in those 15 minutes. And if reporters and, and writers don't acknowledge that, then they are fundamentally misleading their readers. So Babe Ruth was somebody who chose rarely, if ever, to speak about his childhood. And in the void that was created by his reticence um, and by the journalistic mores of the time, which were, you know, to maintain a kind of clubhouse omerta, two colliding and equally inaccurate myths 
grew up about him. One was that he was an orphan. People still come up to me. People who've read the book come up to me and say, well, he was an orphan. No, and he would say emphatically and angrily to reporters who said that, you, so you were an orphan because you went to an orphanage. Everybody thought St. Mary's Industrial School in Baltimore was an orphanage. You were an orphan. No, I had parents, but he would never go further than that. You know, he talked about his father owning bars, but that was about it. Um, the other myth was that he was an incorrigible, a legal term of art used at the time to um, designate boys who were in trouble with the law and who couldn't be controlled by their parents, who were sent off uh, by the courts to um, sentenced, in, in, in effect, to spend time at the St. Mary's Industrial School or equivalent institutions where they were going to um, learn to mind their P's and Q's. And in that version of the babe's youth, he is a wanton, reckless, um, out-of-control seven-year-old running amok on the, on the waterfront of Baltimore because his hardworking parents, who are running you know, taverns, um, can't, don't have the time to look after him. Well, he never wanted to fill in the blanks, so people did it for him. Most notably, uh, Westbrook Pegler, later famous as a very right-wing uh, columnist out of Chicago, who wrote the first um, ghost-written autobiography of Babe Ruth, in which he confected a complete fairy tale about this this boy on the waterfront being taken by his, you know, hardworking father up to St. Mary's and crying and pleading to come home, and the father saying, no, you know, this is best for you, and him crying himself to sleep that night in the dormitory at, at uh, St. Mary's, where a kindly giant named Brother Matthias came, sat on his on his bedside, called him babe for the first time. That, too, Pegler made up and is not true, and said, you know, babe, it's, we, have a, we have a baseball team here for young boys. It's the Colts. Why don't you come out and play with them tomorrow? And Babe Ruth, in this fictional telling, gets up the next day and goes to play baseball and hits his first home run. Well, if you don't have anybody you know, contradicting that or correcting that, that takes root, and it wouldn't be for another 25 years uh, that Pegler finally admitted he made the whole thing up, that in 1920, when everyone wanted a piece of Babe Ruth, he couldn't get to him, and so he just wrote this fairy tale, and uh, it was accepted as, as, as truth by, by tons of people. Who knows if Babe Ruth ever saw it or read it? <laughs> it's <laughs> impossible to know, um, but he certainly never except for saying, you know, that he had parents, uh, he never contradicted it. And people who might have known the facts um, either, you know, were asked by him not to report them or chose on their own not to because, as I said, you know, the line between um, what was public and private was, was seriously adhered to. Grantland Rice, the great bard of sports writing, would write, after Ruth's death in 1948, that nobody knew how bad it was. Mm. And I read into that column that he knew, and he was very close to Ruth, that he may have known um, the truth. And the truth was that he was the oldest of 
either six or eight children born to George and Katie Ruth. He was born as a mother was two, two and a half months pregnant when they got married. It was a difficult marriage for George and Kate to begin with, coming from very different religions. George was a Lutheran, um, and Kate was a Catholic. She had to hide that she got Babe Ruth baptized, and there are no baptismal records for any of the other kids which suggests that George made sure there was there was, they weren't baptized. Um, and she had a succession of children, um, as Babe's only surviving sibling said. She was always, you know, bearing and, and burying children. I could only find um, records, birth records for six, for six uh, birth and death records for six kids. Uh, his sister always said there were eight. It may well be that there were, and... There were no birth certificates. I don't know. But of the six I was able to find, four died in infancy, two of malnutrition. So, you know, you go to, you say to yourself, well, how does that add up? You know, his parents were running inns. They were, uh, they were, they had borders. They were serving food. You know, I'm not saying they didn't work hard for their money, but they were not impoverished. Um, and that, too, was part of the myth that, he, that his family was impoverished. And, in fact, what happened was that Ruth was sent off there in 1902. Again, part of the mythology, courtesy of his sister, Mamie, who would live to age 92, um, was that he was sent because he would never go to school. The only problem with that is you don't send a kid off in June, everybody else is getting out of school, and besides which, she was two years old, so she was no position to know that, um, nor was she in a position at age two to walk him to school, as as the myth, you know, went, and he would she would walk him to school, and he'd walk out the back door. So he's first sent there when he's seven. He thinks he's eight, because his mother can't remember what year he was born. Um, and there's some evidence that he was in and out of St. Mary's for a period of time, but no one knows for sure. His official autobiography written by Bob Considine in 48 and his wife's um, memoir are equally inaccurate. The dates don't add up, but you can't get them exactly right because all the documents from St. Mary's burned in a fire of 1919. Um, so so basically, in 1906, George Sr. Um, caught his wife in a compromising position with one of his bartenders. He had them arrested, um, and he filed for divorce immediately. And the divorce was granted in May 1906, and he was granted um, custody of the three surviving children, adultery being a crime at the time. Um, and Kate Ruth was basically out of Babe's life from from that moment on, um, and she would only live another six years, dying of what her birth certificate said was exhaustion, but also undoubtedly tuberculosis. Um, George, in his deposition, or divorce deposition, said, um, uh, you know, that she was a fine wife as long as she wasn't drunk, but she was always drunk. And he further said that he had opened and closed several bars um, because everywhere he went, she got too friendly with the bartenders. So no wonder he didn't want to describe his childhood. 
you know, today you'd go on uh, on 60 Minutes or you'd have a, you know, one-on-one with Diane Sawyer or whoever, and you'd sit there and you'd say, you know, you'd get a, you'd get a, a heartfelt, you know, sympathetic shoulder, and everybody would say, look at what you've overcome. You go to Oprah, you cry, cry on Oprah. Right, <laughs> right. Thank you for updating me. I was like, Diane Sawyer, right, she's not doing this anymore. Um, but you get a cry, and you get, you'd be understood. Right. And you'd be more appreciated. Back in the day, you know, in his day, you know, that was not something anybody wanted to divulge. Um, and so the only thing he ever said about his mother was in one of his many, you know, ghost-written books, uh, which he said, I think my mother hated me, which resonates and uh, as, as true to me. Um, and also, he told his daughter, Julia, who was alive. Um, Up until late last year, right? Or yeah, she, no, year? she died just a month and a half, two months ago, yeah, at yeah. age 102. Yeah. I asked her what he said to her about St. Mary's, and the only thing he ever said to her about St. Mary's was, I never felt full. And I think that was a statement both of um, actual, you know, hunger pangs, but it was also pangs of an abandoned boy who had been left there by his parents to create a life and a self. And he did it. (laughs) He did a hell of a job of it. Well, as we we continue on that thread, um, who was Harry C. Birmingham? Harry C. Birmingham was a West Baltimore patrol cop, beat cop, who had actually apparently been a friend of George Sr.'s when they were growing up in Baltimore. And um, George Sr.'s bar at um, 426 West Camden Street, which is an address that no longer exists with having the, the waterfront having been reconfigured so much um, around Oriole Park and uh the Inner Harbor, um, George's bar was part of his routine and part of his um, and part of his beat. And he uh, observed that it was not exactly healthy for a seven-year-old boy to be raised in an apartment above a bar and basically spending time in the bar. Now, again, one of the misconceptions was that he had, was raised in a bar. Um, you know, for the first seven years of his life. Not true. The family lived with his paternal grandfather way out Frederick Road, um, near St. Mary's, actually, for the first two years of his life, and then in a very stable, uh, lower-middle-class um, working neighborhood near the, the train yards, the Mount Clare yards, um, and, and far from being ignored and... and unsupervised. He had multiple aunts and uncles, not to mention his own parents, grandparents, and hundreds of cousins, it seemed, surrounding him. So it wasn't until his father up and quit the family lightning business in 1901 that um, that Ruth was, you know, he was uh, brought into this life, this wanton life of living above a bar, and his father didn't tolerate that for very long. And um, one day, patrolman uh, Birmingham said, you know, I think he needs to be out of here. And he, not his, not George Ruth Sr., he took Babe Ruth by police cart up to St. Mary's. And it's not too far a leap to, to, to surmise 
that the whole notion that he was incorrigible and that his parents had gotten a justice of the peace of some kind to consign him to St. Mary's, um, you know, was was the result of Babe Ruth arriving in with a with a policeman at, at St. Mary's, and he wasn't in custody. <laughs> he just happened to be um, being taken there by a a lovely beat cop who saw a boy being exposed to a terrible uh, life and and decided that this would be better for him. Um, and you know, so he grows up with a sense that he's bad. He's done something wrong because after all, you know, his parents only had two kids left and they still didn't want him, you know, and and as a parent, as a mother, I just kept thinking about that little boy, you know, left there by himself and thinking, oh, that's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it def- you, you have definitely put a different spin on the, on the, Babe Ruth legend. I mean, and partly, as as you point out, partly created by Ruth himself, and then and then Ruth becomes uh, Ruth. I mean, he's he's um, sent from you know the Red Sox to the Yankees, at, um, and he was not um, he was not so uh, so Harry Frazee could finance no no Nanette. That just drives me crazy when people say that. That is not true. Uh, <laughs> Not true. Yeah, um, but but he but who is now? We've we talked about Harry C. Birmingham, and then Christy Walsh comes into his life as an adult. And how important is Christy Walsh in the creation of Babe Ruth the celebrity? Well, Christy Walsh is a failed uh, reporter, PR guy, uh, marketing guy who, in February 1921, uh, you know, desperate for a, a job, having just been fired again, um, figures out that if he can get Babe Ruth to sign a contract to allow him to market and sell syndicated columns, ghostwritten columns, under Babe Ruth's byline, um, you know, he, he may be able to save himself. And he um, climbs up the uh, fire escape at the hotel where Babe Ruth was uh, staying, having found no other way to get in, and uh, finds Babe in bed with a blonde, crawls through the window, slaps him on the butt, and says, I want to represent you. And this is the beginning of a relationship, a professional relationship, that would last 14 years and result in the creation of what we would later identify as the Jerry Maguire of Hollywood, um, the sports agent um, of today. Uh, And, you know, he started by ghostwriting stuff for Ruth, and he ended up managing his money, uh, getting him, you know, vaudeville gigs and arranging barnstorming tours and endorsements of everything he could put his mug on. The only thing he couldn't do because in those days it was forbidden, was um, actually uh, uh, enter into negotiations with the Yankees on, on Ruth's behalf for salary, for salary negotiations. And we, there were no negotiations. You know, the right. team said, "This is what we're giving you," and you could hold out if you wanted for more. Um, and uh, but really, only the only that the top people could afford to do that, and so that's what they would do. Um, and uh, he became 
despite himself, despite have being close to bankruptcy um, due to profligacy and uh, fines and a separation agreement from his first wife that cost him a hundred grand, he ended up um, saving a ton of money and becoming a very you know well-to-do man thanks to Christy Walsh. That was Jane Levy. Stay tuned as my good friend Johnny Costa returns and the two of us talk baseball in this annual baseball edition of The Public Morality. Welcome back. It's time for my annual baseball conversation with my good friend, the legendary Johnny Costa. Johnny Costa, welcome back to the public morality. Byron, it's been too long, huh? And uh, we usually do this uh, at the end of spring training, but uh, we have a little first month preview into the new season era. No, that's right. You, you know, I, I got caught up in, you know, some going-ons in Washington and some, I don't know, some constitutional travails, and so I got I got pushed back. But um, I wanted to do, um, uh, a, you know, my annual baseball segment. Now, what you don't know, Johnny, is of all the shows that I do every year, this is, without a doubt, my favorite because I'm less of a host and more just a fan is just a couple guys having a conversation. So I, yeah. re- I really look forward to this. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's what baseball's all about is a couple of people having a conversation, right? Right. Above, above all, how do we meet, Byron? How do we meet over a conversation? Over a conversation. Albeit a little baseball, a little bit more cigars that day, a little bit of literature, but there you go. There you, there, 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 there you go. I, w- I, was, I was explaining to someone about, because um, someone asked me about why do I always do a, um annual baseball show. And um, I said it's probably the most selfish show I do because it's really about me. And if you understand baseball – I, it, I said baseball has religious connotations to it. Um, you, you know, it, it starts in the spring and all that hope. Now, 30 teams have hope on opening day. Now, some of that hope could evaporate after the after the ceremonial first pitch, but everybody has hope. No, no, no doubt about it. And it's uh, the reverence that you talk about. Um, uh, I'm reminded of I went to the uh, to the opening game of the Yankee Giants series at Oracle Park in San Francisco. So first game I've been to this year, been busy like like you and everybody else, and it, it never it never ceases to amaze me. Nor can I not tap into that reverence that we talk about the game. It's the same feeling I get if I walk into St. Joseph's Cathedral here in San Jose, or or any major, you know, synagogue, temple. Mm-hmm. It's like you're overwhelmed with the 
with the meaning that goes beyond anything you can kind of get your mind around. It's how green the grass is. It's, I get that same feeling, and, and I'm not comparing it entirely to religion, but I'm just telling you how right. it how it fills the heart and soul. Kind of like that, right? Well, you know, um, it, it, the other thing is it, it's the other piece is just how you know you know in some ways you know religion is has is, is a tradition that's been passed down. If I, as a baseball fan, if I say to you, 400, what comes to mind? Uh, 400 was the, the, the well, you're talking about Ted Williams. There you go. 406. Yeah, there you go. Okay. <laughs> if I say 56, what comes to mind? It's Joe D's uh, hitting streak, of course. 714, what comes to mind? Hey, well, thanks for picking the Yankees, but uh, the Babe, <laughs> man, his longtime uh, all-time home run record, yeah. No, so that so that is. I mean, I mean, other than that, I mean, seven, fourteen, fifty-six, four hundred. Those aren't numbers that stand out probably in any other genre. Just if you're just counting, but in baseball, they're how actually not four hundred, four hundred six. They're hallowed numbers, and it's just any, it's, any other sport. Okay, I, I mean, we are football has has kind of captured the imagination and the focus of American sports fans, right? Right. All right. Uh, I'll throw one number. If I say, I can't even throw a number to it. If I say a perfect season, what do you think of? Miami Dolphins. Okay. Okay, I'll ask you this. All-time number uh, of yards for the all-time single-season rushing leader. Okay, first of all, I believe it's Emmitt Smith, and I, and, I, and I know it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, but what's if, if I said 15, 16, 17, and I, and I know there's people that know these numbers, right. but generally speaking, you can go to almost somebody off the street, casual fan, and yeah, those numbers those numbers have have meaning, man. There's no doubt about it. No, 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 and. Uh... You know, you know, you sort of touched on it because the only games I get to see now living here in Winston Salem, the only games I get to see um, are I get I do go to the Winston Salem Dash, which is a single A um, White Sox organization. And do you know who our man the manager here was for two years? Uh, I don't. Um, for the last, he's, he he moved up to Double A, but Omar Vizquel was the manager for the previous two years. There you go. I had no idea he was in the uh, managing business. Yeah, no, he is. Yeah, he. he, they, he I mean, he. I mean, you, can, you know, he, he's single A. So um, now he's moved to double A. So maybe. Yeah, maybe. and 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 not a bad shortstop in his own right, huh? Right, and 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 that <laughs> and actually, that's one of the questions I wanted to throw at you. We've got we've got a several. One of the questions I wanted to throw at you. Why is it? Uh, any thoughts? Why? It's difficult for great players to be managers. I mean, I can't see Hank Aaron or Willie Mays or Mickey Mantle. I mean, Ruth wanted to manage, but I can't. I really can't see Ruth managing. Yeah, and uh, and we've kind of kicked this around a little bit. I I think it it really falls back on the same reason. Okay, my my background, as you well know, is in law enforcement. Okay, the same reason why. Um, I worked with some just outstanding patrol officers, great street cops, detectives, could never make the transition into moving into supervision and management. Even though they were outstanding in their own right, 
unless you have that additional skill set of communication, adjusting to uh, uh, diversity in the workforce, um, being able to uh, balance training versus evaluation, motivation, all of those things requires a different skill set. And sometimes I think the greatest players internalize so much of their motivation, mm-hmm. it's really hard for them to uh, to translate that. I, and, and this is not a knock on some of the players I just mentioned. No, but no, I think it's, not I, at all. I think it's fair to say that when Ruth played, it was about Ruth. I mean, he wanted the Yankees to win, but it was about Ruth. It was about, for Ted Williams, for Teddy Ballgame, it was about Teddy Ballgame. And it was, and to some degree, it was about Mays, it was about Aaron. And to be a manager, has got to be about all 27 guys. Yeah, we've kicked that around because I'm talking to you from the, uh, from the hallowed halls of the social club here. So I'm surrounded <laughs> by, which you know all too well, my friend, I'm surrounded surrounded by reminders and and we've had these conversations so when you talk about people playing ball this is like one of the uh the the best venues for people to commiserate and find common ground and all that good (laughs) stuff but here's one topic of conversation we had okay greatest player who balanced that with becoming a great manager wow Okay, well, the the first, Frank Robinson, never won a championship, but I, I would have to put I would have to put Frank Robinson right at the top of the he's list. Probably, right? Yeah, he's probably, I mean, you know, I mean, he probably is the greatest player. Yeah, you, you think with the balance, but, but yeah. uh, in any sport, um, no doubt, man, it, it, it's the, the, the greatest coaches, managers, uh, rarely – were they notable as a player? Some of them didn't even. I mean, look at football. Bill Walsh never even played in the league. Right. Okay? Uh, Vince Lombardi. Don't think he played in the league. I don't think so either. No. You know, so you, uh, Bill Belichick, did he play? I don't know. Uh-uh. Uh, I mean, if he did, uh, a lot of these guys had a. They were journeyman players. I never so, won his football card. I know that. Yeah, exactly. And some of these guys, some of these guys, it's like um, uh, you wonder if one of the reasons why they became into great coaches in addition in addition to having that that skill set that you need in terms of people skills and communication how about that those journeyman type players required a lot of coaching right from different levels at different times where when it came natural to some some of the great players, they didn't maybe need to be coached up as much. They well, weren't exposed to those methods and those techniques, right? Well, I mean, you're you're right in the Bay Area in, in Warriors basketball right now. I mean, how many how many teams in their prep said, "We know we got to stop that Steve Kerr guy." Yeah, yeah. Well, hell of a sixth man in Chicago, right? Yeah, yeah. right. But but he he's he's not going to go to the Hall of Fame as as a player. No. No, of course you not. You know, and and it's it's very true. And I I think I think it uh, it all get it, no, no matter what, no matter what uh, discipline profession, um, I I think that uh, that the people that make that transition, and I think that's why so many people rise to the level of incompetence. I got saying goes right. <laughs> it, it is is that you know maybe they shouldn't have been promoted and they end up going stagnant. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it, it takes it takes different skills. 
um, an entirely different mindset. In addition to being a great player, now I'm not going to I'm not going to mention any names here, okay? Out of respect to the privacy of the conversation, but I was talking to a former uh, player in the NFL, and his coach was one of these Hall of Fame players, mm-hmm. and he expressed some frustration about that. Um, and one day at practice, he finally told the coach, because uh, he played the same position as this coach, and he finally blew up on the guy and, uh, you know, didn't want to be disrespectful, but kind of confronted the coach and say, hey, look, I can't do this stuff. You're, you're telling me just do it, okay? You're telling me you got to read and react to this play, and you got to just do it. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? And the player just kind of blurted out because you know what, coach? I'm not a Hall of Fame player. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm not you. I'm not seeing it through your eyes with your level of experience and your physical and mental skill set. That's not me. I'm doing the best I can. All right, I'm not going to the Hall of Fame. So if you want me to play like you, exactly like you, that's not going to happen. I, I want to get the most out of myself. But I've been in the league long enough that no one is going to mistake me for you when my career is over. <laughs> and I thought, right? I thought that I thought there was a lot of insight into that. That's a lot of insight. Um, one thing I want to talk about that you and I have touched on, and I want to bring it back up. Uh, I think we both agree that um, when it's all said and done, there will be a bust in Cooperstown with Mike Trout's name on it. I, I don't think there's any no debate about that at all. Uh, I I think he's on the on when it, when it comes to the fast track he would be yeah first in line at this point. Now, with that said, you talked about the Mount Rushmore of center fielders. We talked about it the other day, and there's another guy we did not mention. Now he 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 he, he may not be in the modern era, but don't you have to talk about doesn't Ty Cobb have to be in that conversation? The Mount Rushmore center fielders. Yeah, uh, I I think you do in in terms of that uh, the whole proverbial Mount Mount Rushmore thing. You almost you almost want to do it by by eras though. Right. right. Yeah. 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 That's probably the, and eras is probably you know, the best way to do it. When you talk about overall in the game. For what they accomplished at their time and the impact and value they had, then yeah, in in that context, Ty Cobb would have to be in the conversation by by his sheer numbers alone. But uh, Ty Cobb played uh, at a time when at least a third of the greatest players that could have played in America. We're playing in the Negro Leagues and not in the Major League. Well, that's true. And, that's true. And if we want to start dicing up Harris, well, then let's start with, uh, you know, you, you have to consider that. And, and, the, and then everything else in terms of development of the game and, and uh, you know, every element a, a, across the board. We, we sit around in the social club and we talk about this. Who would have... The, the, on Ty Cobb, I mean, we never saw him play, so it's hard to tell. But you'd say, do you think Ty Cobb would have been the Ty Cobb today as he was then? If you plugged in Ty Cobb today, is he the player that he was? I, you know, well, probably well, not. Well, well, is he? Well, well, I mean, if you answer the question, 
is he is he gonna have a lifetime batting average of three sixty six? Nah, I don't no. know. I don't know. I don't know about no. that. I don't know about that. No. And uh. and you wonder if even some legendary players, if you plugged in the same guy and took him at his prime, you know, uh you know, Phil Rizzuto, you know, all five six or five seven of them. Right. Scooter. It, 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 would he would he would he have been uh, a modern day uh, Jose Altuve? I, I don't know. Maybe no, no. I, I I think Altuve physically is a lot more developed than yeah. Bill Rizzuto was. Well, and then, then there are some guys. In the, in, in the flip side of that, there are some guys um, we just go, yeah, like. I think Ted Williams is Ted Williams. Maybe not 400, but he's hit. He's he's in the conversation. He's still Ted Williams now. Ted Williams is a superstar. Mickey yeah. Mantle is a superstar. Yeah. You can go even further back. Lou Gehrig. Gehrig. Lou Gehrig is a superstar. I I have no doubt from everything that you see and read and the 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 people that evaluated those players then and compared them to the more modern eras. Certain guys are going to transcend are going to transcend every era it doesn't matter when they played you could plug them in and 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 those are the the true greats right those are the ones that left no doubt which is you know what the hall of fame conversation is all about the public morality welcomes your comments you can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org that's byron b-y-r-o-n at publicmorality.org our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicreality.com. You can also subscribe to The Public Reality on iTunes. The Public Reality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Reality, I'm Byron Williams. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks i don't care if i ever get back cause it's root 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 for the home team If they don't win, it's a shame, cause it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. It's one.